So we're continuing with some talks and discussion on right effort. And it's such an interesting place, I think, to explore. <clears throat> because pretty much we're all convinced, you know, that we need to make effort. I mean, think about how many times, I'll exaggerate a little, you know, we hate, we've hated our life, hated something about our life or who we are, and we, and we figured, i got to make some effort to fix this. So that's the basic impulse we have when we see something about our life, about our mind, about our circumstance that we don't like. <clears throat> Often we feel compelled to make some kind of effort. And given the fact that we haven't actually fixed anything, <laughs> regardless of all those attempts, it says not that effort is bad, that the kind of effort we're making maybe isn't the most wholesome kind of effort. So that's really this discussion on right effort is to uh, begin to see in our lives like when our efforts don't lead to happiness. Maybe they lead to more tension or more complications in our lives. And when our efforts uh, lead to happiness, lead to peace. So all of the Eightfold Path, you know, that we've been talking about this year, which is really another way of saying when we consciously, intentionally take on a spiritual life, one way to think about what is the uh, driving force in a spiritual life, from a Buddhist perspective, it's what we call appropriate attention or wise consideration. This is, you know, all the different facets of a spiritual life they're all supported by this mindfulness, this wise consideration. But it doesn't mean we just do one thing. It's like we need to uh, specifically generate, cultivate that wise consideration, that wise attention in different places of our lives. So on the Eightfold Path, we talk about it in three ways. So it's organized in three sections. The first section is generating that wise attention so that we're illuminating our view or our understanding. And the more we illuminate our view or understanding, it gets purified from an understanding or understandings based on not seeing things clearly, you know, based on how we've been programmed in our family and our culture, to uh, an understanding based on our direct experience. So that's called purification of view, and it leads to the happiness of peace. Because peace is a good word here, because when our view gets purified, our understanding or view then is in alignment with our direct experience. So there's no incongruities, and that's called peace. When our way of understanding, our way of being, is in alignment with the way things are, that's called peace. So that's the first part of our spiritual life, is purification of view. These, all three of these sections happen together. The one we've been talking about most recently, before I started talking about effort, is sila, or living in harmony, or morality, ethical con conduct. So here we're purifying our actions in the world, our relationships, our livelihood, and just how we relate with our community. And so we generate wise attention, we generate mindfulness in 
the context of when we're relating with our partners and our friends and our family members and our, and our community. And the more we bring mindfulness, awareness into action, into our relationships, we purify our relationships from the kind of relationships that lead to tension and stress and disharmony to the kind of relationships that lead to harmony and uh, what in Buddhism we call the bliss of blamelessness, where we go to bed feeling okay about how we've been relating, that we haven't been relating from in a way like we're trying to harm somebody or get revenge or take things that aren't ours. So we feel good when we go to bed. We feel good even when there's a difficult interaction. We look back and we see my intentions were good. Because sometimes our interactions cause pain for other people. But that doesn't mean what we did was wrong. Because sometimes that's just what happens. Like the Buddha gave the example to a king who was talking to the Buddha about uh, that he, uh, the Buddha had said something about another monk, I think, and it was really hurtful. He was giving some feedback to another practitioner, and it was really painful. And the king asked, you know, now isn't it true that you're totally devoted, dedicated to non-harming, and yet you said, uh, said this, and, and you harmed this other monk? And the Buddha said, but uh, is it true that you have a daughter? And the king said, yes. He says, is it true you love your daughter? And he said, yes. Well, if your daughter got a stick caught in her mouth, would you stick your finger in there and pull that stick out, even if it cut her mouth in, in removing the stick? And the father, the king said, sure. You know, I'd do whatever I'd have to do to get that out of her mouth. And the Buddha said, just so. You know, sometimes what we do, it hurts other people. But it doesn't mean our intention was to harm the person. Our intention might have been to really take care of the person. And the way of taking care of the person in this situation, given our view, which sometimes is not perfect, obviously, was to do this hurtful thing. But it doesn't mean we are trying to harm the person. So when we perfect or as we develop sila, our ethical conduct, we begin to feel the happiness of harmony. And that's the second purification. We're purifying our actions from actions based on self-centeredness to actions based on non-self-centeredness. And then the third, which we began talking about a couple weeks ago, this section called samadhi, which is about the unification of mind or the purification of our mental content. And so here, we're specifically learning to abandon what's agitating for the mind, like craving is agitating for the mind. If I'm sitting here while I'm talking, thinking about you know what I want, then my mind's not going to be very clear, and I won't do a very good job. Or if I'm still fuming about some interaction I had today, then I'll be distracted. So samadhi is really learning to <coughs> purify the mind of the hindrances. And there's a nice list to memorize. So one way to think about the hindrances, I mean, you can think about any self-centered mental activity is a hindrance. But a more sort of broad list would include craving, all forms of aversion, which includes fear, and even things as mild as boredom is a form of aversion, impatience, as well as the outright hating, right? So we have 
all the different forms of craving or lusting, all the forms of aversion, restlessness and dullness, that's a pair, and then doubt, skeptical doubt, unproductive doubt, not penetrating questioning, you know, where we're getting to the bottom of something by skillfully investigating and questioning something. The kind of a, a doubting that just is circular. We're not getting anywhere. We're just actually keeping ourselves from making a choice or from engaging life. We're using the doubting as a way of removing ourselves um, from action. So these are the five hindrances. And this is what we want to purify our mind from. And the Buddha is often, you know, and you've heard me say this, people who have been here for a while, often the Buddha didn't talk about what we're trying to get as much as he talked about what we're trying to abandon. Because, you know, I, instead of saying we're, we're, we're noticing craving and finding ways to free the mind of its identification, of its attachment to craving, you know, I could say instead that we're trying to cultivate generosity. Right? Because that's just, that. what is a heart or mind free of craving? Well, it's a generous heart. It's a content heart. But sometimes when you use the word generosity or contentment, we have a very, we have a fixed idea of that. And then we crave being generous or crave being content. And we miss actually the experience of a heart or mind free of craving. So that's why the Buddha often speaks in the negative, like what we need to abandon as opposed to what we need to cultivate. But you could do it the other way. It's fine to do it the other way. So the opposite of aversion would be kindness or gentleness or compassion. You know, the opposite of restlessness. Well, these two, restlessness and dullness, you're really we're finding a balance, you know, a balance of energy. So restlessness is too much energy and dullness is not enough energy. And doubt, of course, is uh, uh, not having confidence, not having appropriate confidence in our capacity to understand things clearly. It's like we we somehow think we have to figure something out or we need somebody to save us. We need some information that we don't have here in our capacity with this mind in this moment, what we need to have some clarity. And so that's why we spin around uh, in a way that's unproductive. Because we keep missing the point that what will resolve any questions is is uh, a skillful looking or investigation or opening to what is present here and now. Looking at the mind, looking at the body, looking at the conditions of the moment clarifies things. It's very interesting. You know, all of us get caught in doubt. And being on retreat, you really get to see doubt clearly like how it comes in like a cloud and it's just you know a weather system a fog moves in and you just have no clarity but it's so interesting about doubt because it seems so heavy and so um so clearly a problem when you're in the middle of doubt it seems so clearly a problem like the spinning is so important i've got to get out of this i gotta and it's so unproductive but we're just convinced that that's what we have to do so often, if you go to a teacher, what they'll say to alleviate doubt, it's so simple, is take your attention, your mindfulness, and pay attention to something that you can see clearly and have some continuity with it. Like, 
Just follow one in-breath. And the interesting thing is that whole fog of doubt evaporates immediately if you just have a few seconds of being with the breath, with the sound, with sensation in the body, or just seeing doubt as doubt. So the opposite of doubt is to connect with things as they are. The opposite of doubt isn't having a nifty explanation, you know, that tells you the answer to all things. You remember the trilogy, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe? Some of you know that. Part of the big joke of that trilogy is uh, the Earth was created as kind of a computer to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? Is that right? Wasn't that true? And so anyway, they ended up destroying the Earth before they got the answer. So they had to create another planet or spaced um, computer to figure that out. And then they eventually got the answer that they needed to figure out what the answer meant or something like that. Is that right, Scott? No. So, uh, so here, the answer to doubt isn't some answer that we might think, like, you know, uh, 49 or whatever it is. <laughs> 42? <laughs> The answer to, to doubt is a few seconds of the mind, the heart, being completely open or present with things as they are. It actually evaporates any confusion we have. Now, if we start to think about that, we can get confused again. But in that moment, all doubt will pass away. That's why those moments are so beautiful. I mean, people call them mystical moments when you hear a cardinal. And the reason is, when we just hear the cardinal, free of any discursive thought, any analysis, any attachment, we just hear the sound, there's no doubt. And that feels so wonderful. The heart, mind, free of doubt is such a great experience. So this is our job. This is like, in Buddhism, effort is, has a very specific definition. We're making effort to liberate the mind of the hindrances. And, and even more specifically, what we learn, you know, as we make so many mistakes, trying to muscle our way to clear out, you know, clear out all the mess in the mind, you know. No, I'm not going to think that. All those unproductive ways that we try to clear the mind, free the mind. We begin to understand that this effort is very, very specific. I mean, not only is it specific, the spiritual efforts we make in our lives, our lives is not only specific to uh, uh, freeing the mind of the hindrances, but the way that we make that effort or the, what we do to free the mind of the hindrances is we begin to pay attention to the causal nature of how hindrances come into the mind and how hindrances pass away from the mind or heart. Because that's all we need to know. We need to know, like, what is the method? How is it that anger comes into our heart, our mind? How is it that craving arises? How is it that restlessness arises? What are the causes and conditions that support dullness or doubt? And what are the causes and conditions that support the absence of doubt? So, for example, that what I said about doubt, once you see that about doubt, it will be really hard because, you know, when we're caught in doubt, we think we have to think about the doubt. Like, should I get married or not? Or should I take this job or th that job? Or, you know, all these things that we can just obsess about. And it just seems like the silliest thing in the world to feel the breath as it's coming in or to 
open to sounds just as they are, just to feel the body for a minute or two. Like, how is that going to resolve this big... Because doubt gets really big. The more we spin with it, it just feels huge. Like, this has to be figured out. But what happens if our happiness isn't so much a matter of whether we marry this person or not marry this person, or have this career or this career, or live here or live there, as it is about how we relate to the moment? And see, that's the, that's the crux. So the effort we make is to understand pragmatically what makes doubt pass away. And once we get that, then we start to make effort to act in that way. Once we have some hints about what causes doubt to pass out of the mind, then we act on it, and then the confidence builds. In the same way with like how doubt arises, we start to notice how something comes up, it's unpleasant, we don't like it, so we start to obsess about how to get rid of it, you know? Or we start to doubt ourselves, like, why does this always happen to me? Why do I always get into difficult relationships? Or why do I always end up spending two hours a night watching TV and then feel miserable afterward? Or why do I always overeat? Or why do I, you know, and then we just start having doubt about our lives and about who we are and our capacity to be happy. And it's really good to see that. Like to say, oh, that was not wise attention. That was unwise attention. There's this great, uh, I think I read it last week, but I'll just, it's a short little passage from the suttas, from the discourses, where the Buddha says, with regard to internal factors in the heart and mind, I do not envision any other single factor so helpful as appropriate attention for a practitioner who is a learner who has not attained the goal, meaning complete freedom, but remains intent on the unexcelled security from bondage. A practitioner, practitioner who attends appropriately abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. A practitioner who attends appropriately or you know, wisely considers this is how it is. That's all we need to do. It sets everything else that's wholesome in motion. So this effort we make is uh, really taking responsibility for our mind. This is one-third of the spiritual life. You know, one-third is the purification of view, understanding. One-third is about the purification of our actions in the world from being based on self-centeredness and harming and greed to not that. And then this third part is samadhi, unifying the mind or, or purifying the heart-mind of the hindrances. And so we're making effort to uh, attend mindfully to how it is. And in particular, we're learning the causal nature of how unwholesome things arise and how unwholesome things pass away and how wholesome mind states arise and how unwholesome, uh, uh, how wholesome mind states are undermined, how, how they fall away.
And just to sort of inspire us a, le- a little, this is another short passage from the Buddha. He's talking, actually, Sariputta, the main disciple of the Buddha, who was um, alive at the time of the Buddha. And he's talking to another well-known monk, uh, Mahakasapa. And he says, It is said, friend, that a person without ardor, that sort of wholeheartedness, without concern, is incapable of self-awakening, incapable of unbinding, incapable of attaining the unexcelled security from bondage. And so he asks him, he asks this other monk to explain why this is so. And this other monk, Mahakasapa, says, there is a case where a practitioner thinks the arising of unarisen, unskillful qualities, right? So the arising of anger that's not currently in the mind would lead to what is unbeneficial, yet he or she arouses no ardor. So this is what the Buddha is saying we shouldn't do. It's like, to the degree we know that anger is unwholesome, and we see now there's no anger in the mind and heart. If we're not making an effort, if we're not wholeheartedly sort of like recognizing this is a heart without anger, and this is a heart that, you know, and that this freedom from anger is something to be maintained. So we need to make an effort. This is uh, sometimes translated as vigilance. And, uh, and you know, we don't normally don't think about that. Like when there's not a lot of afflictive mind states, we tend to be pretty relaxed in terms of our effort. Now again, the effort is really specific. It's not a tensing up like we're afraid of that anger is going to come in. But it's much more about a sensitivity. It's like noticing the little seeds that might bloom into anger and seeing them as seeds and not going there. So, for example, you know, we're unafflicted with anger and then somebody walks in the room that we had a difficult interaction with. Now, when that person walks in the room, if we're not being sensitive, or normally it's translated, this word sensitive is translated as guarding the senses, then when I see the person, if I'm not sensitive or guarding the senses, my mind will immediately, that image of that person will immediately trigger the memory of what happened, and then I'll start to think about that, and I'll sort of chew on it. And that will trigger the feeling of anger, and the anger will intensify the thoughts and the emotion, and it just spins up and we're lost in anger. But instead, if we're being really sensitive, as soon as we see the person, we'll, we'll have kind of a taste that if I attend unwisely to this person, I will get caught up in anger. So we don't let ourselves go there. And there are all kinds of strategies. The first strategy, of course, is just to notice the impulse toward anger, toward aversion. And in and, and noticing that, we just feel that's that's like being burnt. I don't want to go there. And we just naturally don't go there. We only go there if we think there's something sweet there. Like, oh, yeah. You know? there's a On the surface, there's some sweetness to anger. Because we feel solid when we're angry. And in this world that where everything is kind of fluid, the ego likes that feeling of solidity, self-righteous solidity. You know? I'm right. He or she's wrong. That feels good to us. But if we're sensitive, if we're really looking 
uh, at what we're seeing, what we're smelling, what we're hearing, what we're feeling in the body, what we're thinking, with this kind of sensitivity, then we'll know what the seed is like, if it's wholesome or unwholesome. And if it's an unwholesome seed, we won't plant it by chewing on it, by giving it energy. And, and the Buddha goes on in this, this short discourse just to talk about how this, uh, that we want, to, we want to be ardent in all of these ways. So to the degree we know that unarisen, unwholesome mind states are unbeneficial, we want to be ardent about that, like really noticing what's not there so that if it starts to arise, we see it. Oh, anger. This is unwholesome. And, it, and it, just that scene of the unwholesomeness of it is the cause for it to go away. Or if it's already present, sometimes we're angry and we don't think anything of it. We just feel, well, that's just how it is now. I'm angry. But the Buddha says we should be ardent, meaning that knowing there's anger in the mind, we should do whatever we can to abandon it. We shouldn't just leave it alone. Now, getting angry at anger doesn't help. So the Buddha is not saying we should do things that increase anger in the mind. He's saying we should do anything that lessens the anger in the mind or whatever the unwholesome mind state is. Maybe it's lusting or craving or restlessness or dullness or doubting. doubting. But we shouldn't just let it stay there. And same thing with wholesome mind states. Any wholesome mind state that can be developed, we should be developing it. So we should be you know, using our life to constantly be cultivating, developing wholesome mind states. And any wholesome mind state that's already present in the heart of mind, we should be doing whatever we can to maintain it and strengthen it. This, these are the four ways to make our effort. And I made a copy of the four efforts and uh, some other strategies that we'll be talking about in the coming weeks. Take a second, pass it around. And Greg, maybe you can let me just keep one. And then you can put this on your fridge or your nightstand or in your pocket. And so it's li- what are listed here are the four exertions. And the first thing I wrote down for each of them is just one word, because this will help us remember them. We're preventing unwholesome mind states from arising. So preventing is one word. Abandoning unwholesome mind states that are already in the heart. Developing, un- uh, developing wholesome mind states that aren't present and maintaining the ones that are present. So we're restraining, abandoning, or preventing, restraining, abandoning, developing, and maintaining. So if we can just take, you know, life feels like it takes a lot of effort. But instead of this sort of, all these things that feel like a burden, we're being very focused, that we're devoting our life to these, to making effort in these four ways. Preventing unwholesome mind states from arising, abandoning unwholesome mind states that are present, developing the wholesome, and maintaining the wholesome that are there. And I know it might seem like, or I'm too busy, (laughs) but we have absolutely every incentive to do these four things. There is nobody in any particular circumstances that doesn't have an incentive to be as much as possible, turning their mind toward these four efforts. 
Now, it's up to each of us to figure out how to do that skillfully. In the next few weeks, we'll talk about how that might be. Now, how, how do we do that in a way that actually works as opposed to a way that makes us feel guilty or a, may, a way that sort of exhausts us? Because the point isn't to be good, right? The point isn't to be better than the people next to you in this room, you know, to be exert more than these other people or to get ahead. The point is to be happy. So remember that like all of these uh, teachings, all these skillful means, they are pragmatic in the sense that it's just about whether it's leading to happiness or not. So how do we prevent unwholesome mind states from arising in a way that's conducive to real happiness, real peace? So that's what we've been talking about a little bit for the last few weeks, is this uh, preventing. And one way that the Buddha talked about this is in terms of feeding and starving the hindrances. Remember I talked about just getting to know karma. Karma just is about how things come to be and how things pass away. And because life is a process, it's constantly changing. This law of karma, the more we uh, orient our mind to seeing things in terms of causality or conditionality, the more useful it is. Because we just start seeing how nothing happens by accident. Things come due to causes and conditions, and they go due to causes and conditions. So this is a nice metaphor, feeding and starving. Like, because it doesn't matter in terms of our suffering what is being sort of supported by outside conditions because those are outside conditions and we don't really have control over those. But we do have control over how we're relating to our lives and to the conditions of our lives. So that's where we want to focus our attention on how we relate and the ways of relating that support suffering and the ways of relating that support happiness. So feeding the hindrances, meaning we're relating in a way that supports suffering. So there's this great discourse talk the Buddha gave, usually translated food for the factors of awakening. But it includes feeding the hindrances and starving the hindrances and feeding the wholesome mind states and starving wholesome mind states. So we really want to know these four things so that we can only feed the wholesome and only starve the unwholesome. That would be ideal, right? So he's, first he talks about how we inadvertently feed the hindrances. So the first hindrance is craving sensual uh, experience, right? Grasping after pleasant sense experience. So how do you think we feed this habit of our mind to crave? How do you think we feed that? What is it that we do that feeds that tendency? So the Buddha says, there is the theme of beauty. To foster inappropriate attention to it, this is the food for the arising of unarisen sense desire, or for the growth and increase of sense desire once it has arisen. So there is this theme of beauty to foster inappropriate attention. Now the Buddha is not saying that beauty is bad. Some people, when they don't look carefully at the teachings, they think the Buddha is anti-life or anti-world. You know, like, if only we didn't have a world or if only we didn't have life. 
then we'd be happy. <laughs> but the Buddha's not saying that. He's saying that it's how we relate that causes the problem. So just imagine something you consider beautiful. You know, it might be some piece of art. That it might be na- uh, something in nature that, for you, is really beautiful. It might be a person that you're just inspired by. Uh, Maybe a nephew or a niece or a pet that you just find really beautiful. So inappropriate, what would the inappropriate attention? Now remember, all of the terms are defined pragmatically. So how could you relate to your favorite pet in a way that would cause suffering? You see it, you like it, you see it as beautiful. Maybe it's the cause for, you know, wanting another pet, you know? And so instead of the natural joy of being around something pleasant like your cat, your mind is obsessing about getting another cat. Or your mind is obsessing about what you can do to prevent the loss of this cat. And you become kind of caught up in fear, like, I don't know if you have cats, but they're like all these vaccines you need to get. I can't even think of all the vaccines Sumi has to get every year. You know, and so if you thought about it enough, and they're always telling you, don't let your cat outside. Well, we let our cat outside all the time. And so then it's like, you know, the vets tell you, well, if you do that, you know, they generally don't live more than nine years and subject to all these diseases and the raccoons will get them. And so we could, you know, the mind could spin. And so then seeing the beauty is the cause for fear or for suffering to arise. So that would be attending inappropriately. So what's attending appropriately? Well, this is what the Buddha says in terms of craving or sense desire or seeing something beautiful. This is in terms of uh, starving the hindrance. Now, you got to really think about this because it's easy to take this the wrong way. Now, what is the lack of food for the arising of unarisen sense desire for the growth increase of sensual desire once it has arisen there is the theme of unattractiveness to foster appropriate attention to it this is the lack of food for the arising of unarisen sense desire for the growth or for the growth and increase of sensual desire once it has arisen so to foster appropriate attention to the unattractiveness. So let's just take the example of the pet again. So let's say we have a pet. And generally when we see our pet, especially if we've been away for a day, we see it as beautiful. Okay? So let's just assume that. And you can substitute anything else that makes sense for you. Maybe a piece of music. Maybe a partner. Beautiful. And so the Buddha says to foster attention to the unattractiveness, appropriate attention, appropriate attention to the unattractiveness of that. So what this means is to see what we tend not to see when we see something beautiful. So what is it that I don't see when I see my cat, Sumi? Well, one of the things I generally don't see is that she's impermanent. Right? So when I'm looking at Sumi, if I'm not just seeing her with this idea that she's a great cat and she's, and it's almost as if she's going to be there forever. Now, I don't necessarily think that she's going to be there forever, but I definitely don't have the thought that this is a fragile 
thing we call life, and it will pass away. So that's one way to bring the unattractiveness. Or just to see the sort of uh, whole picture, you know? So see the scratching on the couch, and the pooping, and the smell, and the fur, as well as the sweetness. and the, the whole idea of bringing in the unattractiveness is to balance the imbalance. It's because we're not seeing the whole picture that we have to starve, or, uh, um, starve the hindrance by appropriately attending to the unattractiveness. This is true with our partners, too, believe it or not. We have a healthier relationship with our partners, with our friends, with our family members, if we take them in as they actually are, instead of just being idealistic. But we take in the whole package. They're a human being. They're a suffering human being. They've been conditioned just like I've been conditioned. That means they've got a lot of fear, and they've got a lot of desire, and they've got a lot of confusion. Just like I have a lot of fear and desire and confusion. They're going to act out in their own particular way, just like I act out in my own particular way. They're going to pass gas sometimes. They're going to take what I like sometimes. And they're going to do beautiful things sometimes and do this sometimes. So we take in the whole picture. That's how we starve the hindrance of craving. Because the mind can't get attached, can't get addicted to like a pet or, or a partner or the sound of a bird if it understands it completely. Attachment only arises with delusion in the sense of we're not seeing the whole picture. Our mind out of habit is just letting in a certain part that confirms our view. So the people we like, we just see the good parts of them. Right? And that's and the good memories. And the people we don't like, we don't let ourselves see the good parts. We only let ourselves see the uh, not so scuffle parts. So, uh, you can work with this this week as homework if you want. This feeding and starving. So for each of the hindrances, try to get a sense of what it is that feeds the hindrance, meaning supports its arising, and what is it that starves the hindrances. And feel free to also do this in terms of positive qualities, wholesome qualities, like kindness, like uh, contentment or generosity, like that balanced energy between restlessness and dullness. What are, how do you bring up that energy, that balanced energy? So you can work in the positive if you find that more useful. Don't feel like you have to work with the hindrances. You can just do the flip side. And then next week, if you see on that sheet, um, I'll talk about the Buddha has this wonderful discourse where he gives five strategies for working with distracting thoughts. And these are just another set of instructions. The Buddha gave many sets of instructions. And I'll talk more about that, but feel free to even with those few instructions there, you can begin to play with them. Some of you have heard me talk about these before, so you might already know about these. And we'll continue working through the four exertions probably for three or four more weeks. So make it a theme. And feel free to just work with one of the four exertions, whatever seems to be more interesting to you. But I want to leave us some time so people can share about the kinds of efforts you've been making in your own life or any questions that you have about the talk tonight, what comes to mind?
any success, preventing or abandoning. So far, we've really just been talking about the first two exertions, preventing unwholesome states from arising and abandoning unwholesome states when they're present. So just think, reflect about your own life, times when you've been caught in various unwholesome mind states and how you've been effective at times in abandoning, moving beyond that, being caught in that state. Or what hasn't worked. Chris? Maybe a little bit louder, Chris, so they can hear you in the back. Uh, yeah, and the other one, um, yeah, okay. well, maybe I'll come back to you. But that's so, that I hope you people heard that because I think it's so potent. Just the simple thought when we're getting caught up in anger that we've been angry like this before and it's blown in and it's blown out. It really undermines it. The whole intensity of anger depends on somehow it becoming our whole universe and as if nothing is outside of this anger and this anger has to be dealt with as if it's everything. And if we can get some space around it, it really starts to cut in to the identification. It's hard to maintain the identification with the anger if we have that thought. Yeah, and I remember that. Oh, good. Was, um, it, it's kind of like remembering the bigger picture. You know, if I get angry about something, I'll, I'll also have a memory of, well, they don't intend to do it, or you know, what, what else might be around the situation that, that hasn't caught my emotions, but, but it's still there. Because anger means we need an object to get angry at. So the bigger, what the bigger picture can do, the way how I language what you said is uh, using karma. And so when we get the bigger picture, we understand that whomever we're tending to blame, whether it's the traffic or a particular person, uh, the anger depends on that person being sort of a set entity. You know, I'm here and he or she is there and they're wrong or bad. But when we get that bigger picture, we realize that we're all part of this process of causes and conditions. And what that person did is just part of this stream of lawful unfolding that I call Chris's life. But it isn't a thing. And so that bigger picture sort of undermines the, like, the duality. And we see that people are just, you know, things, life is just sort of acting itself out in a very lawful way. And it's hard to hold on to anger when we see that. Jimmy? When I'm thinking about that, Mark, it really helps me to just add in my mind to say things could not be any different than they are right in this moment. Yeah. And for some reason, that really helps me just let go of a lot of stuff. And not take things personally. So in terms of like practice, that would be, if, if you're inspired by that statement, you could just remember that statement 
instead of thinking like all the things that came up tonight, just take one thing, like that phrase Jimmy gave, things could not be other than, what did you say, other than they are? And just reflect on that. So whenever there's, especially with aversion, then you just work with that phrase. Things can't be different, couldn't be different than they are. Given, you know, given the causality or given conditionality that everything is arising due to causes and conditions, this moment can't be different than it is. This is how it is. And then, of course, the other piece of that is however I behave in this moment is going to affect the future moments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, that's the piece that helps it not just feel like, oh, you know, everything's out of my control. Yeah, so how do I relate to, given that, how do, how, what is the skillful way of relating? Because to get angry, what does that do? You know, we just see, we just don't. And it's almost like we learn to put on, this is actually, goes back to purification of view. You see how they all, all three of the sections of a spiritual life overlap. Because in order to make right effort, we're, we're generating developing that wisdom of seeing things in terms of causes and conditions, that lawfulness of life, of how things unfold. And that's the purification of view. Because normally that's not how we see things. We see things in terms of good and bad. And that's a very simplistic way of seeing things. You know, people are either good or evil. And uh, good things we want to hold on to and bad things, evil people we want to push away. But instead, if we see things in terms of causality or conditionality, well, that really that puts us in a more neutral place where we're not as easily sucked into aversion and, and uh, attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm just thinking that, that um, anger and all the emotions have, uh, you know, if we attach to them, they can throw us off balance. But they also can show us things. So how do you think about that in terms of Buddhism? Because anger isn't always, you know, like a hindrance, I don't think. It's, <coughs> sometimes if you're looking, you know, you can see, you know, if I'm angry, maybe somebody's hitting somebody else and that makes me angry. Then you can say, you can look and see what the cause, you know, why is that making me angry, you know, because I don't want to see people. I don't know. You know, I don't know exactly how to say it, but it seems like emotions serve a purpose too. That they can show you the way things are, as well as keep you from seeing the way things are. So how do you how do you balance that in, in terms of Buddhism? Well, we're not trying to stop the emotions. Yeah. We're just trying to cultivate uh, a wise way of relating to the emotions, okay. and our emotional life will just continue. You know, our anger is not like, nobody in this room's anger is likely to disappear anytime soon, or craving is likely to dissipate, to disappear anytime soon. But our way of relating to our desiring, our craving, and our anger, that actually, we're all in a position now, as ordinary human beings, to, to radically transform how we relate to our various emotional patterns. So that we can do exactly what you're suggesting, which is, our emotional life becomes the ground of insight as opposed to the, the cause for um, uh, habit energy just to repeat itself in a blind way. So we're not learning anything. We're not seeing anything new. We simply 
act out our habit energy, our emotional habit energy. Maria? No, it's a good question. But I want to understand so I can talk to so I can say things to myself when I'm struggling with my doubt around this stuff. My skeptical doubt. Yeah. So the hindrance of aversion is the identification with the aversion. Okay. The hindrance of craving is the identification. It's the identification that creates the problem. So Right. And, and here's, the, here's the really important thing. Don't starve something that you think is wholesome. And don't feed something that you directly see in the moment is unwholesome. This is instinctual. This is, from a spiritual point of view, this practice is instinctual. We naturally will uh, starve something that is unwholesome. So the key is to really know what unwholesomeness is. And, and that's another way, that's another beautiful way to simplify like what our spiritual life is about. It's just developing a sophistication, uh, a nimbleness of mind that very quickly discerns what's wholesome and unwholesome. And again, you, it, I think really what you're pointing to, Maria, is that we, this needs to be pragmatic. Because it's, if it's abstract, like this is bad and this is good, as starving and feeding suggests, then it just sounds like, you know, uh, it just sounds more of the same in terms of the, the kind of religious training a lot of us got in an abstract way that just didn't seem real. So what we're talking about is directly seeing that going this way a little bit like what Jimmy was pointing to a few minutes ago. You know, if I relate to this in this way, I'm just going to create misery for myself and others. If I relate in this way, I will be moving towards ease and contentment and happiness, and I'll be useful in the world. So it's, it's really, it needs to be grounded on that level. So it's true in, in practice we do want to do whatever we have to to not do things that lead to suffering. Even if, but we start with strategies that um, are not so, what's the right word? You know, we use only as much, it's like ultimately the best strategy is just awareness. But sometimes our unwholesome tendencies are so strong that being aware of it isn't enough to keep us from acting it out. 
So then you work down this list of five things. So the first thing is just awareness. If that doesn't work, you go to substitution, which is maybe if you're caught up in aversion, you bring in loving kindness. But maybe the aversion is so strong, you can't do that. Well, then you try to bring up wholesome shame. Like you, It's like the Buddha describes it. Like really see that the anger is like wearing a necklace of rotting flesh. You do not want to have this around. And if that doesn't work, and then you try to ignore it. or divert. These are not very productive strategies, but they're slightly more productive than just letting yourself be swept away with anger. That's the least skillful thing for a human being to do when they're caught in anger or caught in lust, is just to let themselves be swept away. So what the Buddha is saying, do whatever is most skillful. If that doesn't work, do whatever is almost as skillful as that, but not quite, you know, and you just... Until you just do, until, and he literally says, until if, if nothing else works, you grab the mind state, the unwholesome mind state, like a strong man would grab a weak man, and you wrestle it to the ground, and you pin it down. Now, it's not very productive, and it's conducive to aversion and, you know, hating ourselves and all kinds of, but, but the, the positive of it is, the mind is staying very clear this is unwholesome and that's what we don't want to forget that is our lifeline in terms of generating happier future for ourselves is to stay clear about what's wholesome and unwholesome in the mind and as I read from that earlier discourse the main problem we find ourselves in is that we're too distracted in life so that when unwholesome mind states are there, we might even know that they're there, but we're just a little overwhelmed and we just don't bother to do anything about the aversion or the lust. And we let ourselves indulge in it. I mean, think about how much of our lives, I mean, speaking for myself now, how much of my life I have spent indulging in lust, in aversion, you know, in doubt. I mean, and it's all because I didn't think it was, you know, such a big deal. And so partly what we're doing is we're developing a sensitivity where we realize it's always a big deal because we're creating misery for ourselves. And then through ripple effects, we're causing problems for everybody around us. So we have every reason to do this, but we want to do it in a way that's skillful. And we don't want to be afraid of doing whatever is skillful, even if it's intense sometimes. You know, that's why people, when you look at saints from any religious spiritual tradition they did some pretty crazy intense things and it's very easy for us to think oh you know that's not the right path the path is just acceptance and letting go but if that's our only strategy is acceptance and letting go we're just going to continue being obsessed with anger and greed from the until the end of time because sometimes the appropriate response is a more a much more messy energetic uh, response to whatever's going on in our mind or heart or around us. And sometimes that more subtle response is the right response. And we're the only one who's going to know. And often we don't know until after we made a mistake, you know, and we overdid it. And we should have used a more subtle response. Or we used a subtle response and it required a more engaged, willful response. And so we just have to learn like what works and what doesn't work and when to bring out the big guns and when to just use awareness.
But we'll continue talking about this. And it would be great if people bring some real-life experiences of working with unwholesome mind states this week uh, to prevent them from arising. But especially, let's uh, focus in on when they're present, what works in terms of the moving beyond them, beyond the suffering, beyond the uh, attachment or identification with the unwholesome states.